When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Some of us turn off the lights and we live with the moonlight shooting by. Some of us scare ourselves to death in the dark to be where the angels fly. Pretty maids all in a row lined up outside my cabin door. I've never wanted any of them wanting me except the girl from the Red River Shore. Well, I sat by her side and for a while I tried to make that girl my wife. She gave me her best advice and she said, go home and lead a quiet life. Well, I've been to the east, and I've been to the west, and I've been out where the black winds roar. Somehow, though, I never did get that far with the girl from the Red River Shore. Those are the opening lines to Bob Dylan's 1997 song, Girl from the Red River Shore, or simply uh, sometimes Red River Shore. And this is Bob Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. Joining me to talk about this remarkable song is a writer-artist whose work has appeared in such comics as Invisible Republic, Savage Hulk, Star Wars Legacy, and Boom Studios' Planet of the Apes, Gabriel Hardman. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. As I said just off air, I have been a big fan of your stuff for a long time, and uh, this is just really great. And it's also, you know, kind of fun to talk about, uh, to talk to someone who, you know, wouldn't necessarily be appearing on a Bob Dylan podcast, you know, not on a comics-related podcast, sure. But I like yeah. the idea of having a comic book artist to talk about Bob Dylan. I probably obsess about Bob Dylan more than I do about comics. So. <laughs> wow, cool. Um, <laughs> now, now, of course, for all guests, when they're on for the first time, I always ask them about how they came to, to Bob Dylan. Before we even get to that, I do need to mention like how Gabriel and I got together, and it's this totally random happenstance. Is a, a couple of months ago, maybe last month, I happened to see a tweet from a fellow comic book creator, Ron Randall, to you, and it was something. It was with a picture, and it had something along the lines of, "Hey, Gabriel, I think you and I are the only people that listen to this album, and the only ones that like this album." And it was a picture of a turntable with a vinyl copy of uh, Bob Dylan's "Good as I've Been to You" album, and I was like. Wait a minute! I love that album. I've listened to that album a thousand times, and so I interjected myself into the conversation with a all caps "ahem," and then that's pretty much all it took. And I found out that both you and Ron are big Dylan fans, and I've spoken to Ron about being on the show, and I spoke to you, and and now here we are. So thank goodness Ron wrote that crazy random tweet, and I happened to see it because I was so excited. I love that record. I know anybody else liked it the way I do. So so Gabriel, like, how did you come to being a Bob Dylan fan? Um, I mean, my my mother was a sort of casual Dylan fan. And uh, I mean, I, I think she maybe more than casual, but not not obsessive. And uh, so when I was probably 13 or so, she had picked up a tape of uh, bringing it all back home and uh, ostensibly for her to listen to. But I just took it and started listening <laughs> to it. And uh, and like uh, and and I and, and it sort of developed. And then I. Uh, you know, started getting, you know, every other one that I could find and, uh, and like, and became, and I mean, I have a tendency and I've always had a tendency to like latch onto things and get very, very into them. And, uh, so, you know, I, I just, I, I just collected up as many as possible, but it was also, also, uh, you know, I mean, starting with the earlier stuff, starting with the, you know, uh, um, you know, those, those first several records, but, mm -hmm. but also, uh, but very quickly blood on the tracks and, 
uh, and in, in no particular order, you know, like uh, street legal or the, uh, you know, the slow train coming. And, and then very soon, uh, you know, right around that time, the uh, Oh Mercy came out. And so oh, that was okay. the first one that I bought, uh, you know, just as new as it came out and, and loved that record. And uh, and so. You know, and that that's when that's when I really, you know, got into it and started and went to see him live the first time around that same time, too. Oh, how was that? Uh, Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was the <laughs> earliest days of the never ending tour and stuff. I, I've heard uh, that tone from other Dylan fans that have seen him live. Yeah. However, well, I... I, I've seen him probably, you know, like 14 times live something oh, okay. like that all right Great. you know i mean i've seen him a lot it's not like you know and uh, and uh, you know i mean a good amount anyway over the you know not as many as you i guess but uh the uh but like over you know i mean and most of those have been in the kind of post time out of mind era you know i mean i although i saw him sporadically before that you know as a live performer he's he's not uh, up for giving the audience what it wants yeah <laughs> pretty I'm much totally ever open. Like, I actually am totally respectful of that and feel like I'm coming there and I'm seeing whatever, you know, uh, he wants. And and I've seen some amazing shows. I mean, Mm -hmm. like uh, some and I love the, you know, that, you know, uh, the the, the era between Time Out of Mind and, and the Sinatra stuff like that's that's you know, one of my favorite eras. And so, and I've, so I've loved it the, uh, when he's, uh, when he's playing, you know, like for the last several years, uh, he had been playing, you know, majority stuff from the newer records. And I right. love that. I love, I love going to see somebody who is, you know, a, a, a vital musician, not uh, an oldies act. Right, you know? right. I don't want to go there to see him, you know, replicate blowing in the wind right? or whatever, you know, I mean, like I, I actually really like. I don't mind the reinterpretation thing at all. And sometimes, you know, some shows are better than others, obviously, but I've seen a, a few that have been really amazing. Yeah, I mean, as, as especially as a creative person yourself, you have an appreciation for, you know, wanting to do things a little differently. I mean, the, the work that you've done before exists. It's already out there. And if you enjoy that, you enjoy that. But let me try this other thing. And it's sort of amazing to think about. Imagine being a musician with such a breadth and depth of material to pull from that you can skip entire decades of your career. Like you yeah. can just skip the eighties, <laughs> like all the entire eighties output. I don't need to do it tonight. And I'm still, I still have a more than enough material for a concert. Yeah. And I, you know, like a couple of years ago I saw him and you know, he, it was, it was right after Tempest came out mm-hmm. and it was you know heavy on, on that stuff. And like, you know, him, you know, the live pay in blood, uh, from uh, from that show was like one of the best things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he closed the show doing uh, uh, one of the Sinatra songs for the first time he'd done it live. Uh, it mm. was, you know, encore, which right. actually was kind of interesting and great to hear. Yeah, I've been saying on the show for the best couple episodes that he's really been able to put those Sinatra things kind of across in concert. I'd, I, I, I'm not the hugest fan of these last couple albums, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. I but I would love but if he put I mean like I'm going to buy anything he puts out obviously but if if they did a live album of the Sinatra stuff I think I'd be almost more into that because I feel like he's really been putting those across live and so yeah. uh, it's amazing so I mean and related to you know not giving the audience what it wants uh, <laughs> this song that we're here to talk about Red River Shore or Girl from the Red River Shore is one of the great lost 
Dylan songs. Uh, I, I heard about this song for the first time in around 1997, uh, right around the time when, because it was recorded for Time Out of Mind for, for producer Daniel Lenoir, who of course also did Oh Mercy with Bob. And I read an interview with uh, Jim Dickinson, who played on Time Out of Mind. He plays keyboards and piano on the record for a, a Dylan fan magazine called On the Tracks. And so this is 1997, around the time the record came out. This is not pre-internet, but pretty close. And so things were still kind of, you know, sketchy in terms of you couldn't find everything you wanted to on the Internet. And he gave this interview. And it's one of my most favorite pieces of Dylan Alia that exists because I look, I love hearing interviews. I love reading interviews with Bob Dylan, but I can't relate to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's on the moon. Bob Dylan's a Martian. I can't relate to what he says right. or thinks. But but when it's musicians that are in the room with the guy, that's different. That I can imagine. I can put myself in those shoes of like what it must be like to be in the same space as this guy and watch him create his art. I would imagine it's like watching Picasso paint. You know, you're just like, how many people get to see this? And Dickinson gave this amazing interview talking about recording the songs, and he mentioned uh, two missing songs. And of course, you know, as a Dylan obsessive, I was like, huh? what? Two, two songs yeah. that didn't make it on the time out of mind? What's he talking about? And one was Mississippi, which, of course, would later appear on Love and Theft. But the other one was this thing called Girl from the Red River Shore. He even quoted some lyrics from it. And that, that song became one of, like, like it was like a, the, the Ark of the Covenant for me. You know, like I had to find this yeah. song. And I kept haunting this uh, bootleg record store down in the, the village in New York City. And I could never I could never find a bootleg of this thing. And it would drove me nuts. And then finally, it was released on uh, Bootleg Series Volume 8, Telltale Signs, which covers the last bunch of records. So finally, we get to hear it. So why did you want to talk about this one? What, what are your feelings about this song? Um, I mean, my the way I came to the song was kind of similar, but it was it was probably around the era of love and theft, and I had read references to it on you know expecting rain message boards or something like that, you know, and uh, like and as one of those songs that is this sort of uh, you know potential classic song that's floating out there somewhere that that you can't hear, and uh, and so it, it's something that I'd always kind of you know been interested and excited about, and then when I finally got to hear it, I feel like it's I mean for me it's one of his best songs. Like mm -hmm. it really is a, an, an amazing song and a classic song and a song that does the kind of, you know, that, that kind of spooky, uh, temporally ambiguous thing that he does. Uh, and, uh, and has like, has the, the kind of the feel of a, of a, of a folk, a folk tradition sort of song that uh, that had, you know, possibly been cobbled together from different elements or something and mm -hmm. has these contradictions in it. And I love the contradictions in it. I don't feel like uh, like the last thing I need out of uh, out of a song and often out of anything is that it uh, it has to have some sort of like really literal narrative to it for me to enjoy it and all of the and those the weird ambiguities about it are the things that i love the most right i've been listening to the song you know ever since the the bootleg series put it out and i've been trying to get a handle on you know just what is going on here and i don't i i'm still not able to quite figure it out because it, it sounds 
you know, the more I've, and I've done some reading on it and I, you know, read some interpretations and of course there's a, a Jesus allegory near the end and yeah. we, we will get to that, but it always, I, you, it's funny, you talk about the folk element of it and I think that's, that's a big part of it. First of all, the sound, I love how the first couple of verses is just Bob by himself. And then I think around yeah. verse three, the band kicks in with this kind of Tex-Mex sound, which is really amazing. And there's something about the visual uh, that I conjure in my head when I listen to this song. And I, I picture Bob like sitting on a bench uh, just, you know, and he, he's kind of away from the rest of the band and they're all kind of just waiting to start and then they kick in. And just, it's fun to listen to this guy tell this story about this amazing woman, this girl from the Red River Shore. Then, And, you know, I, 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 re, you know, I read the lyrics and I think, well, maybe is he talking potentially about his muse yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a woman that he can't escape from and he keeps trying to go back to. And uh, we talk about it in verse two. She says, you know, I tried to make that girl my wife. And she said, gave me the best advice. She said, go home and lead a quiet life, which of some, of course, Bob Dylan did not do. I yeah, mean, this is this is a song about a guy traveling the world. And that is something Bob Dylan has done. I mean, Bob Dylan, God, he's out there pushing whiskey now. He could <laughs> he could host <laughs> a travel show because yeah. he's been to every corner of this world. And. I feel like that there's a lot of that when you listen to this. And also there's a lot of phrases borrowed from life. I mean, there's the line about pretty maids all in a row lined up, which is a phrase, you know, from the yeah. culture. Uh, the Red, Red River is, that's a real thing in the country. Right. It does, there's, there's also a movie, a John Wayne movie yeah, called Howard Hawks, Howard Hawks yeah. and Red, Red yeah. River. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of this stuff where it's like it's, it's sort of layered in the history of Americana while he's going on and on and talking about this amazing woman. Yeah, and also just you know, to the point of how it's recorded. I mean, I think that uh, that one of the things that this benefits from is as much as I love Time Out of Mind, one of the things this benefits from is that Daniel Lenoir didn't pay enough attention to it to, you know, like uh, overdo it, you know? Right. I mean, I, I think that there's like, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like some people don't care for how austere sort of this uh, this recording is, but I love it. And I think, and I love the way, as you're talking about the musicians come in on each verse and, uh, and it kind of builds and builds and it, uh, and you know, it doesn't have that kind of filtered growl thing that uh, Time Out of Mind does, which, you know, works really well on a lot of that stuff, but it doesn't feel like it would be quite as appropriate for this song. Well, that's the thing I was going to ask you, uh, and I, I've had this debate back and forth with people uh, about, like, there is no dependent when you listen to Time Out of Mind and how very produced that record is, and I think it's a great record. I think it's one of yeah. the best things he's ever done. Me too. You can't, I can't picture this song on this, on that record. I just can't hear yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I mean, I can kind of imagine it being the final song instead of Highlands, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, uh, uh, but I could, you know, I could also easily imagine, you know, to bring you my love being gone because right. I can't stand that song. <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, like I've been, I've loved time out of mind since the moment it came out and I've listened to it endlessly. And I just can't, that song just is the only song that doesn't work for me. The, uh, but I mean, I, I agree that it doesn't, to me, it feels more like it's in the world of the kind of stuff that he's exploring with love and theft yes. forward. Yes. You know, I mean that, that, you know, the kind of old weird America type stuff and the uh, and you, you know, I which it, which wasn't exactly what Time Out of Mind was about. It was a lot more straightforward sort of and and spare and the uh, and, you know, the kind I mean, this is a relatively spare song, but the kinds of stuff that it suggests are different than what is suggested by the other stuff on Time Out of Mind. 
Yeah, and it's his his delivery has got a little more of kind of a wit to it. Not a wit, that's kind of a little more of a smile, even though it's kind of a sad song. I feel like the sort of almost like um, like a shruggy delivery that he gives it is it kind of gives it a looseness that, again, would not have fit on Time Out of Mind. But at the same time, you know, I, I'm kind of a big believer in and I'm, what the hell do I know? I've never made a record in my life and I never will. But like to me, the idea is keep the best songs and that's your record. You know, find the, you the theme will der- be derived from the songs that are the best, not so much. Well, I can't leave this great song off because it doesn't yeah. fit the record. It, to me, it's like Bob, well, you're leaving off a masterpiece, right. Bob. Bob di- I'm going to tell you something. Bob Dylan does not agree with you. <laughs> well, that's that's <laughs> very obvious. Yes, you heard about infidels? Yeah. Oh Lord. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 in that interview that I talked about by Jim Dickinson, he, he gives this great, great part of the story, and I can't help but picture where he says he he records. They record the song, and Dickinson just thinks it's great. He and he even says yeah. in the interview, it's the best thing we record recorded on the album which of course again in 1997 i was like <gasps> you know like, what does that even mean this album is so great and he's saying it's the best thing and he said that after they were done this recording bob says something to the effect of well there's nothing else to do with that except uh, bring in a symphony and jim dickinson said if that had been my session i would have said bob there is the phone my yeah. miami has a local symphony and they will come down here if you call them. And he said, I looked over at Lanois, and Lanois was just sort of staring off into space. And it, it, there, it, that was it. It was the end of it. It never was brought yeah. up again. I thought, oh, look, <laughs> this is so disappointing. But yeah. that was that was just sort of the take. Bob apparently was just never happy with it. He just never yeah. quite got the version he wanted, and so it gets left behind. Yeah, well, yeah, like that piece of crap song blind willie mctell or you know yeah, I mean, exactly like, oh, you man. know i mean he does this a lot but that's you know you know there are a thousand reasons for that and obviously part of them have to do with the producer and having you know conflicts with him and all that sort of stuff and i i mean i i think that it i mean for me it this feels like the best version of this song so i mean if they had tried to you know produce overproduce it and finesse it and everything any further i don't know that it would have Work. I mean, I, I think it's interesting how he talks in that um, interview, how Jim Dickinson talks in that interview about how many musicians were in there mm-hmm. and how chaotic it was and how uh, because it's not exactly what you hear on Time Out of Mind or on this record. I mean, uh, it, it, although I guess Dylan's vocal is so far, far forward and everything else isn't. So, I mean, maybe, maybe there's just a lot going on there that we're not quite hearing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I said I can only imagine the, the, the pressure that must be put on any producer that's working with Bob Dylan. Maybe there's a reason why Bob Dylan only allows this Jack Frost guy to produce him yeah. at this point. You know, like he just well, he doesn't feel the need to have a producer anymore. Look, I can sympathize, you know, it's not, it's not great when you're when you're working on a creative thing and you're not seeing eye to eye with somebody who ostensibly has, you know, uh, some kind of final word on it. You know, right. even if it's, you know, I mean, obviously he's Bob Dylan, you know, but uh, but there, I mean, look, there's the I mean, the the records that he made from the 80s, you know, up until Love and Theft, there's a lot of evidence of you know the the conflicts with the producer and and the you know and how that uh played out shaping the way the final record came out so it's not like he's you know omnipotent in all of this it's still there's still some kind of process where uh uh unless it's i mean i think maybe he fired mark Knopfler or something from infidels but like there's the you know that conflict with the producer obviously has shaped a lot of those records yeah 
Yeah, I mean, again, the, one other quote I wanted to mention from Dickinson, he, he talks about, he says, with Dylan, I mean, there was an awful lot of music going on. Six guitar players, you know, people just sitting there ready to play and barely able to get a note in. It was a curious situation. Sometimes when it was all going on, it would be chaotic for an hour or more. But then there would be this period of clarity, just five or eight minutes of absolute clarity where everybody in the room knew we were getting it. It was unlike any session that I've ever been on, but because everybody could feel the potential and realizing that potential. If we went too far, it was too far. If we did too much, we would kill whatever it wanted that he wanted. And so, yeah, I mean, they imagine trying to be in the room with this guy and figure out what he, what he wants from you. And again, the, the lyrics, I want to go a little more on the lyrics because, again, they are just sort of amazing and that they, much like a lot of the other stuff on Time Out of Mind and, and a lot of the recent records, the lines are very, fairly simple. Uh, he, yeah. He's kind of really abandoned the twisty wordplay that he was so famous for and said this stuff is more straightforward. And he says, verse three, he says, well, I knew when I first laid eyes on her, I could never be free. One look at her and I knew right away she would always be with me, which again, it feels like that's music. It's the muse here. Well, the dream died up a long, dried up a long time ago. Don't know where it is anymore. True to life, true to me, was the girl from the Red River shore. While I'm wearing the cloak of misery and I've tasted jilted love and the frozen smile upon my face fits me like a glove. While I can't escape from those memories of the one that I'll always adore, all those nights when I lay in the arms of the girl from the Red River shore. And yeah, again, I keep going back to like all those nights when I lay in the arms. It feels like that's, I mean, this is a guy that performs 150 concerts a year at 75 years old. That's what he's doing at night. He's he's on stage at night generally. Yeah, right, right. Although there's there's also other things that are contradicting this idea, like <laughs> through it. I mean, that that uh, the uh, you know it, it, there, there are other parts of it where it, where it seems like he he was never really with her, and there are and there are certainly and as the as the song lyrically as the song develops, it suggests that not you know that she may have never existed and that uh you know uh, uh, that where uh you know i mean one of my favorite parts of it is the uh you know went back to straighten it out you know the uh and you know nobody there you know knew who i was talking about that right. i mean I, I i think that that's incredible like it's that's so spooky and ambiguous <laughs> and you know uh, it's a beautiful thing Right. He says, he sings, he says, well, we're living in the shadows of a fading past, trapped in the fires of time. I tried not to ever hurt anybody and stay out of a life of crime. And when it's all been said and done, I never did know the score. One day away is another day away from the girl from the Red River shore. Well, I'm a stranger here in a strange land, but I know this is where I belong. I ramble and gamble. There's another folk reference, ramble and gambling, yeah. for the one I love. And the hills will give me a song. Though nothing looks familiar to me, I know I've stayed here before, once a thousand nights ago with the girl from the Red River shore. And then he ends it with, well, I've been back to see her. I, well, I went back to see about her once, went back to straighten it out. Everybody that I talked to had seen us there, said they didn't know what I was who I was talking about. Well, the sun went down on me a long time ago. I had to go back from the door. I wish I could have spent every hour of my life with the girl from the Red River shore. Now, I heard of a guy who lived a long time ago, a man full of sorrow and strife, that if someone around him died and was dead, he knew him how to bring him on back to life. Well, I don't know what kind of language he used, or if they even do that kind of thing anymore. Sometimes I think nobody saw me here at all, except the girl from the Red River Shore. And so, yeah, it has this very spooky, ambiguous ending of, does anyone remember this guy? Is this guy a ghost? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... 
first he says that, you know, basically says that she may have never existed, suggests she may have never existed. And then maybe he doesn't exist. <laughs> like, I, the, the, I I just think that's fantastic. I mean, that's just, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the song kind of deconstructs itself as it goes along. <laughs> It was amazing what, uh, you know, what was on his mind at this time. In fact, there's another story I heard about where he had decided at some point, I think in the mid-90s, to stop writing songs. He just yeah. said that was enough. Like, there was a quota. I think it was, it was the word that he used in his interview. It was like, all right, I've written 500 songs. That's enough. And then apparently he was on his Minnesota farm, and there was a massive snowstorm, and he got snowed in, and uh, the, one of the managers calls him, and he's like, you know, Bob, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm writing songs. You know, <laughs> and you're like, OK, that's a big deal when Bob Dylan starts writing songs. And so it's it's sort of amazing how well that he is He's using these these idioms from other songs. Again, I mentioned the Ramble and Gamble. I mean, he even wrote a song called Ramble and Gamble and Willie, which is mm -hmm. borrows that phrase. But yet, as you said, they are it's the song seems to be deconstructing itself as it goes along. And yet it has this very easygoing kind of sound to it that doesn't hint that there's that much of it going on you know i mean it's yeah. to me it's very easy to listen to for a song that's almost eight minutes it, yeah it really it, kind of rambles very charmingly but it also you know but it's something that and probably you know the first couple of times i listened to it i it was it's oh it's he's pining for this girl and then there's uh, a lyric about uh, um bringing people back to life like you know and and not not thinking about it as closely as uh because it because of that easygoing way that the song presents itself it doesn't feel like it's uh, about kind of the epic things that it that i think it kind of is you know or at least you can interpret it as being right. I mean, once a song hits like the seven minute mark, you're kind of expecting, you know, Oh, it's a desolation row. It's sad. eyed lady of the lowlands. It's highlands. It's tempest. Yeah. It's, it's a massive thing. And it's going to have all these characters like those songs do, but this doesn't, this kind of keeps it at a very low level. And it's just the guy sort of wandering the, the, the American landscape. I mean, again, when he talks about, I know I've stayed here before I'm picture, how many hotels has this guy stayed in? How many, sure. how many motel, well, not Motel 6, I'm sure Bob stays in nice place, nicer places than that. But if you <laughs> I know, so. yeah, I sure hope so. How many Hyatts, you know, has this guy been in? How many, how many times has Bob Dylan wandered down to the ice machine, you know, to get, <laughs> get, get something? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's this amazing itinerant monk kind of lifestyle that he leads yeah. and so and it's yeah. it's probably difficult for him to wander down there because he has to put on the hat with the wig and then uh you know to, to walk down to the ice machine yeah it's got to be uh <laughs> it's got to be a very strange existence and that's something else jim dickinson mentioned where he said that at one point in between recording the songs they wandered out to the parking lot and uh, oh he mentioned something about that there was like a, a fire door uh, from the studio out to the parking lot and normally it's a it's a violation or something if the if the the fire door is open but he said if bob wants the door open the door is open and they yeah. they wandered out there and at one point it was just him and bob like sitting on the bumper of a car talking about elvis songs and yeah. he, he said he caught himself in that moment going i i'm in this miami parking lot at three in the morning talking about dylan about elvis like what the hell is going like it just seems so sure. surreal and so yeah it, it's I, I am I always do wonder about the relationships that Bob, you know, makes on the road. And I don't mean that in just a in like a you know, like a sort of a sexual yeah, manner. Yeah, yeah. But no, just anything. The, the, I, the people that he encounters must be amazing. And it's it also is weird that where well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I do comics, I write and draw comics, but my other main career for 
20 years has been doing storyboards for movies. So I work on movies. Right. And uh, and so I work with, you know, Christopher Nolan or, you know, big directors. And there is this, you know, that I'm not in any way putting, you know, the directors I've worked with in the class of a, a person like Bob Dylan, but the but the way that uh, people who are you know well known or influential can, can interact with with the people around them is always a little bit interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I like it, it. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by these kind of things, like the Jim Dickinson thing, or or you know whatever articles in Mojo magazine I read over the years about uh, you know the the process of making these these things and the ways that this incredibly uh, an unknowable guy, Bob Dylan, interacts with the people he works with. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I've mentioned it before on the show, and I know I posted it on the Twitter feed. There's a great photo somebody took of Bob Dylan at like a blimpy at like <laughs> three in the morning, and he's reading like a sporting news, and he's got the Tex Mech shirt on, and he's got a cowboy yeah. hat. And like, I've always said to myself, you know, if I ever met Bob, that would be how I'd want to meet him. With just like that, you know, like an informal, right. you walk in, I'm, I'm walking into a 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee at three in the morning. And that, oh my God, there's, there he is. You know? And I always think, what would I do in that scenario? And I think it's like, I'd probably give him like a thumbs up and that's it. Yeah. Like, I'm going to talk yeah. to him because I don't want to bother him. You know? <laughs> just got to give him like a, Bob, I know, you you know that I know who you are. And we, you know, and so. Oh okay. man, I would not talk to this guy. Like, I, <laughs> you know, I, like. I mean, nothing, nothing good's going to come out of that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it would be, it would just be too, too huge to contemplate. So, I mean, I would have wished this had appeared on Time Out of Mind, even though, again, I think it would have been a discordant note. But as you said, uh, Make You Feel My Love is a fairly discordant note. And that was sort of, so I am always a big fan of, to me, you put the best songs and this is the best song. And, and. Maybe this would have worked on on Love and Theft. It it it's a shame that more people didn't get to hear it. Although I guess you know it's on the bootleg series, so people did get to finally hear it. And luckily, it lived up to the hype. Like it yeah, was one of those yeah, things. You're like, wow, this is everything that I thought it would be. For right? Yeah, it interview. is a rare thing that I like something like Blind Willie McTell, where it it is as great. Mm-hmm. I think it's as great as as everybody said it was. You know, and I mean, oh, also, actually, I just wanted to talk about that last bit about the uh, um, the seeming biblical uh, right. allegory thing because um, I think that like. I think everybody sort of rushes to, you know, to assume that that's a Jesus reference. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but I but it is weirdly ambiguous. It's I mean, for something that is uh, and and I'm no biblical scholar, but the but like it's it doesn't the, the fact that that the references are all a little bit like. You know, they're they're not over home plate as far as, uh, <laughs> as specifically being about Jesus. And I feel like it the fact that it it feels like it could be like anything in uh, in a sort of in in some like religious tradition or whatever that uh, about you know, death and resurrection. And that, uh, that, that the, the fact that he would put that in there, but not be super specific about it, it being a Jesus thing, I think is interesting. And, uh, I had just gone, uh, my wife and I just went to this kind of like experimental theater thing that was based on Gilgamesh and, uh, and, but very, very loosely based on it. And, uh, to the point where I couldn't quite remember what Gilgamesh was about and the, <laughs> the play wasn't helping me. And, uh, and so, um, like I picked up a, a translation of it, like just like last week and, uh, and I was reading it and the, the introduction to it 
is uh, is this like short little couplet type thing that says uh, it, it's an old story, but one that can still be told about a man who loved and lost a friend to death and learned he lacked the power to bring him back to life. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, the, the fact that these are the concerns that have gone, you know, that, that people had, you know, 2000 years before Jesus and uh, and have have been a kind of broader spectrum thing, I think is is it's interesting the way that he like he talked about that stuff in a less specific way to make it kind of more universal and more kind of bigger and spookier. I've said spooky like 400 times, but it still feels like applies to the song. Well, right. I mean, it is a very strange element to bring into the song at the last moment because it's mostly just the first seven verses. It's just him and the red girl from the Red River Shore. And then all yeah. of a sudden you've got this other guy coming in and you're like, "What? wait a minute, what? And something else in that, that last verse, and I'm glad you brought it up because I, I wanted to mention it and I sort of forgot as we were talking, is that a lot of the songs that have that he's been writing, at least on the last couple records, there's a lot of thought about um, practicing in ancient art. You know, yeah. talking about, you know, I mean, I'm sure, and he himself, I'm sure, views himself uh, in that way. I mean, he's really one of the last musicians that sort of takes this old school, travel the world and bring the music to the masses kind of mentality, as opposed to like, you know, like a massive tour with, you know, video screens and where it's like this weird pop art project, although he's done that himself as, as well, of course. But I mean, I, I think he, there's a lot of that in his songs. And, and then the line about, well, they know what kind of language you used or if they do that kind of thing anymore. It's like, you know, it, is anybody following what I'm doing? You know what I mean? Like, if yeah, like he's, yeah. he's talking about that a little. This little like, yeah. well, this is how I communicate. Does anybody do that kind of thing anymore? I, I feel right. like he's got that in there, too. So, yeah, the, the last verse really does kind of throw you for a loop. And then especially with his vocal, the last line where he says somebody I think sometimes I think nobody saw me here at all. It sounds very he kind of like gets excited. Most of the, the yeah. song is sung in a very even register, and then the last line is very kind of almost like panicky in a weird way. I'm about overselling it a little, but it's it's yeah, but it's, I get it's an interesting saying, way to end the yeah. song. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I said it's uh, you know, I, unsurprisingly, Red River Shore has never been performed live, uh, but of course, as you've mentioned, Blind Willie McTell was another song that he left off of Infidels, and then once it got put on the Bootleg series. He worked it into concerts. Uh, yeah. He's been performing by Willie McTown concerts. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I think it was at the Grammys or somewhere. Not the Grammys. It was some show where Martin Scorsese got a Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, yeah, and right, Bob Dylan right. sang Brian Willie McTell. He had one song to sing, and that's the one he chose. So I still hold out hope that someday yeah, he well, will bring it, this one it, out. It's been 10 years since that bootleg series came out. <laughs> so it's, it might be a faint hope. But, uh, uh, you know, I, but I, you know, I would, I would absolutely love that. And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a song that has the, I mean, one of the things, one of the best things about Dylan songs for me are, are the ones where they are, they're unknowable enough that you're constantly coming back to them to think about them and figure them out, you know? And, uh, and like, I think that that's something in, you know, also in, in movies, in a lot of things, that's, that's something that really appeals to me where there, there is an element to them that they can, uh, that they, they always lure you back because you've never quite figured it out, you know? And yes. I, I think that that's, 
Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, I said it's uh, the bootleg series has been a, a great gift to the, all of us, and thank thank goodness Bob has decided to let this stuff come out. Oh, know, as opposed so, to well, yeah, I mean that the first you know the volume one to three bootleg series was huge for me when it yeah, came out. Yeah, like I you know I I've uh, I've always had an affection for this stuff, particularly the ones you know where you know where we get some glimpse of these songs, these studio songs that. Yeah. Uh, that we've never heard before. Yeah, yeah, it's unreal. So, I mean, like I said, I'm glad we finally got to. So I spent many hours at uh, Generation Records in the village looking for the <laughs> song, and I never found it. So th- thank you, Columbia, for fi- finally putting out. So, uh, well, anyway, Gabriel, thank you so much for doing this, man. I, I This was so exciting. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of your work, and uh, I, I'm thrilled to, like, again, to get to kind of talk to you in a different context like this. This was just great. I'm so glad I saw that tweet. By Ron, yeah. by Ron Randall, um, and maybe sometime we'll have you back on. We could talk about something from Good as I've Been to You, since that's what sort yeah, of brought well, us together. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing, I mean, the big connection for me with that is that I, um, I do this. Uh, what the main, you know, uh, creator on comic series that my wife Karina Becco and I do is called Invisible Republic, right. and it's uh, kind of a big epic sci-fi series. But it's also like the kernel that it's based on is the song Arthur McBride, and uh, oh, and, okay. And, you know, you should check it out. It's uh, it, uh, it. I mean, the main character is called. Well, he's not exactly the main character, but uh, but a pivotal character is called Arthur McBride, and the <laughs> the beginning of the story is a a sort of retelling of that story song ballad, and uh, you know, but in this kind of science fiction context. And then there's a very big epic story that unravels from there. But it's the kernel of it is sort of as in a sort of folk tradition taking this uh this story and repurposing it in a different you know in a different way i think bob would love that i really <laughs> think he would love to hear i think that's that would something he would enjoy that another creative person has taken something he's done and transmogrified it into something else i think that would that would that would please him to no end yeah yeah and it's you know part of that big folk continuum thing or at least that's uh, you know that's the idea passing the songs down absolutely so uh so where can people find you on the internet uh on mainly on uh on twitter it's just my name gabriel hardman or on instagram it's gabriel hardman art outstanding so everybody yeah everybody check out invisible republic uh that sounds really cool we'll have to i'm gonna check that out myself and of course if you want to find back episodes of our show go to the website fireandwaterpodcast.com and there you see all our shows from uh, everybody on the network and of course we're always talking bob dylan over on twitter uh which is uh, of course been very useful lately <laughs> which is a uh, pod underscore dylan so thank you gabriel so much great talking to you thanks everybody for listening and until the next episode we will see you later bye Some of us turn off the lights and we live In the moonlight shooting by Some of us scare ourselves to death in the dark To be where the angels fly Pretty maids all in a row lined up Outside my cabin door I've never wanted any of them wanting me Except the girl from the Red River shore Well, I sat by her side and for a while I tried To make that girl 
my wife She gave me her best advice And she said Go home and lead a quiet life Well, I've been to the east and I've been to the west And I've been out where the black winds roar Somehow, though, I never did get that far With the girl from the Red River shore Well, I knew when I first laid eyes on her I couldn't ever be free One look at her and I knew right away She should always be with me Well, the dream dried up a long time ago Don't know where it is anymore True to life, true to me Was the girl from the river 